It's great to be with you. Um, we are actually wrapping up a rather long series on uh, the Gospel of Matthew, the ABCs of In Town. Uh, we've been looking at this book for about five months, so many of you may be um, excited that we're moving on. Uh, next week, we'll be starting a new sermon series. We'll have a brand new reformatted bulletin. Um, we'll be starting new classes. Uh, we'll be starting uh, new in-town new classes, which will be downstairs, uh, new Bible studies, new lots of stuff. It's our fall kickoff, so I hope that you guys can make it back next week. And also invite a friend, invite a neighbor. We'd love to have them. Um, we're going to look this morning one, more, one last time at the Gospel of Matthew, and this is chapter 23, and we're asking, what in the world are we doing for heaven's sake? This is sort of a summary of uh, all that we've talked about, a uh, very short summary. But what now? After we've looked at our core values, after we've looked at our mission statement over and over, what are we to do? And so one more time, the in-town Presbyterian church is a community that is seeking to embody the historic Christian gospel in the city of Portland. And this is our gospel reading, Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter, latter without neglecting the former, you blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you a story of a church. Some of you know this story, but many of you, maybe most of you don't. About 14 years ago, a good friend of mine who was passionate about urban ministry raised a bunch of money and moved his family from the south out to the west coast to start a church. And their tagline, they were going to be a church that was in the city for the city, a church that felt the needs of the city, that spoke the language of the city, a church where modern secular people could investigate and could encounter Jesus. However, this church, because it was the only church of its kind, of its brand, in the city, it began to attract people who seemed to be coming more for the brand, more for the type of church, rather than for the mission. And there's nothing wrong, of course, with buying into a certain brand of Christianity. We all do that. After all, in-town Presbyterian church, we are a certain brand of Christianity. But some of the, and some of these people went on to become leaders and servants and gave lots of money to the church. But over time, this vision of ministry to the city, while it was still there on paper and talked about periodically, it began to sort of drift slightly into the background, and the pastor found himself more and more trying to meet the expectations of insiders rather than inspiring the church to minister to and invite and include and welcome outsiders. And as much as this pastor tried, he couldn't really get the church to focus upon the needs and the people of the city, and he grew tired and left. Some of you thought I was talking about me and us, right? But I wasn't. Another pastor came, and God began to attract people from the city. But he wasn't very beloved by the core people, and so after less than two years, he was forced out. 
Now, a third pastor came, and he felt called to the city. He felt called to recapture that original vision of being a city, a church in the city and for the city. And over time, some of the core people, particularly those who lived outside of the city that were driving in for the brand, for the type of Christianity, began to drift away. And what was left was barely a remnant, financially speaking. But this community, it seemed to the pastor, was more captivated by the Great Commission, was more eager to figure out ways to creatively engage the people and the culture around them, and less interested in simply propagating a certain brand of Christianity. Well, that community has spent the last five months investigating the gospel of Matthew and what it says about the church, seeking to reorient it, it itself around its core mission and be captivated again by the call of Jesus in the gospel of Matthew. And over and over, we've seen the pattern of the church's mission in the world is to be like that of Jesus, who was born into the world, who lived in the world, who died for the world. The church is called to a humble, a sacrificial identification with those to whom we are sent. To those to whom we are sent. The church cares for its own people, of course. It listens, it serves, it instructs, it disciples but it can never lose sight of being a body that is sent. Lose sight of a being, and if we lose sight of that, we lose sight of being a church. So what in the world are we doing for heaven's sake? Well, I picked up this passage in the middle of a series of very severe challenges that Jesus is giving to the Pharisees, to the religious elite. And he gives a very short summary of everything that the church is basically called to do. There's so much more, right? But Jesus summarizes it. It's very simple. The church is to seek justice. It's to be a place of mercy. And it's to be faithful. Jesus is giving us a summary of sorts of our Old Testament passage, Micah 6, that may be familiar to you. And if you compress these two together, you see the biblical admission involves three concerns. That is compassion for the powerless, justice, compassion for the hurting, mercy, and faithfulness to God's plan in the world. Now, I'm often asked by people who've lived here on the West Coast for quite some time, why are you here? What brought you out here? And as some of you know, I didn't plan on being a pastor after trying on a career that didn't fit. I found myself working at a church and taking seminary classes and actually enjoying it and figuring out, wow, this is what I was made to do. I loved to study, and I loved interacting with people about God's Word. And this church invested in me and helped me get to seminary, and I learned a lot. And this church is back in the South, and it's still one of the ones with the most robust missions program of any church that I know of. They supported hundreds of missionaries around the world to the tune of almost $3 million a year. But here's the thing. As exciting as that was, I didn't want, as a pastor at that church, to invite my non-Christian friends because I knew that we weren't speaking their language. 
I knew that I would have to do so much translation work and so much explanation and apology and a lot of squirming during the sermon that it was hard for me to stick my neck out and invite someone to church. You see, my church at that time talked about non-Christians, but not to them. And most of the church was too busy, myself included oftentimes, too busy at church to have friendships with people outside of the church. But as Emil Bruner says, and I quoted him in your bulletin, the church exists by mission as fire by burning. Mission isn't a department of the church, but mission is the essence of the church. The whole church, not just the evangelists, not just the missionaries that are sent overseas, or the missions department is in mission, but the whole church. Now, perhaps you're sitting here, and I'm sensitive to you, if you're investigating the faith, and you're wondering if this all makes sense, and this word mission, this talk of mission, probably makes you squirm a little bit. But I ask for your patience, because this is wrapping up a sermon series on our core values, and this is a bit more of an insider sermon than normal. And what I can say to you is that we're not trying to change you. We're not trying to convert you. You have a safe seat here to investigate at your leisure and at your pace. And frankly, there are a lot of Christian churches that need evangelization. Liberal churches that feel barely more than a social club that people gather. Or conservative churches that are theological echo chambers that the Pharisees would love to participate in. What we do believe is that the birthright, the birthright of every human being entitles them to know of God's compassionate, welcoming love and His invitation into a new humanity. Mission, evangelism for the church is the presentation in the context of a trusting relationship, a trusting friendship of an alternative reality an alternative way to look at the world, a humanity where justice and mercy and faithfulness prevail. This is not an imposition upon you. It's a sharing in friendship of what we believe to be your birthright, which you're free to reject, of course. Now, look at Jesus' description of this new world. What is the invitation to? What kind of community are we talking about? He says it embodies the very things that the Pharisees, the religious elite, completely forgot. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So as we wrap up our study of Matthew, let's look at each of these as a way of answering, what now? What are we to do now? What on earth are we doing for heaven's sake? And actually, it's pretty simple, those three things. Now, I did see a pie chart this morning while I was re-looking at the text and looking on the Internet, uh, because that's where I do all my sermon research is the Internet, right? And it had a little bit more complicated version of how to answer this question of what does the Lord require of you, and it had a pie chart, and it was to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God, and more cowbell. If you didn't laugh at that, shame on you. You need to Google Will Ferrell and Blue Oyster Cult. Not here, but when you get home. 
little comic relief because this is a rather solemn, rather serious series or sermon. First of all, justice. Justice is essentially God's critique of ungodly power. A culture without equality, where classes, where people, where races, where types of people are left out, where there's systemic injustice that is happening that is allowed to go on and on. When we started our study of of Matthew way back in the beginning, we looked at chapter 4, and after Jesus' temptation in the desert, Jesus goes through the synagogues, what were then essentially little churches, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. From the very beginning, Jesus avoids both the error of the conservative churches that make proclamation without care for physical needs, that divides the two. And he admonishes the Pharisees in verse 4, examples of what not to do. They tie up heavy, heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they are not willing to lift a finger to help them. High on proclamation, low on help. But he also challenges what would be sort of stereotypically the the liberal mainline error. That is, a high commitment to justice, but not the rationale of the gospel. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom verbally and clearly. Dr. Charles Malik, I believe I quoted him last week, but it fits better in this sermon. He was the Lebanese president of the 13th UN General Assembly, and he says the needs of the world are much deeper than political freedom and security, much deeper than social justice and economic development, much deeper than democracy and progress. The deeper needs of the world belong to the sphere of the mind and the heart and the spirit, a sphere sphere to be penetrated with the light and the grace of Jesus Christ. It is possible, you see, to to do good to others for our sake rather than theirs, and we call that paternalism. And we shouldn't forget Henry David Thoreau's warning. If you see someone coming to you with the intention of doing you good, run for your life. The gospel says, proclaim the good news of the kingdom, and because of that good news, fight for justice. But this is interesting And I did research this on the internet this week. As far as I can tell, there's no Reformed or Evangelical statement of faith that recognizes the centrality of justice in the Christian life. The Westminster, the Heidelberg, the Belgic, the Canons of Dort go on and on. None of them mention justice except theoretically as a defense of God's sovereignty. None of them. And a few of them mention love either, but that's for another sermon series. But here the Belhar Confession, written in the throes of the South African apartheid by the Dutch Reformed Church. We believe that God has revealed himself as the one who wishes to bring about justice and true peace among the people. That God, in a world full of injustice and enmity, is in a special way the God of the destitute, the poor, and the wronged. That God calls the church to follow him in this, for God brings justice to the oppressed and gives bread to the hungry. 
that God supports the downtrodden and protects the stranger and helps orphan and widows. Therefore, we reject any ideology which would legitimate forms of injustice and any doctrine which is unwilling to resist such an ideology in the name of the gospel. But of course, there's so much injustice, right? There's so much pain. There's so much hurt. Where do we start? How as a church do we get involved? Well, we looked at Matthew 9 a few weeks ago where Jesus looks upon the hurting world, looks upon harassed and helpless people, and what does he say? When his disciples are like, Lord, what can we possibly do? He says, ask. Ask the, ask the Lord to send out laborers into his harvest field. There's so much to do and so few to do it. What are we to do? Pray. The first thing to do is pray. And this isn't an escapist, just spiritualized answer. It's not to avoid the problem because prayer tunes our hearts to the heart of God. Prayer helps us focus on others' needs. Prayer turns frustration and anger into hope. So maybe before we seek to do anything, some of us should walk around our neighborhood and bathe it in prayer. Or maybe you gather with your community group in your neighborhood And you walk around and you bathe that neighborhood in prayer. You have a list of people in your neighborhood who are hurting and you pray for them over and over. Maybe before you do anything at all. Maybe instead of tackling statewide or national issues, our deacons should become experts on the needs of the few square blocks around us. What's going on in these towers around us? What are the needs of the people in the Section 8 housing right there? Maybe our deacons should get together and gather and pray for our neighborhood before we do anything. But justice, remember, is not content with only prayer and with only words. But justice is about actively loving the poor and the orphan and the alien and the widow intentionally. So justice, secondly, mercy, and I'm going to try to pick up the pace here. We saw in chapter 4 that Jesus came with a mandate to preach and to liberate and to heal, and then he commissions his followers to do the very same thing. And here's what's scary, friends. Here's what's scary if you belong to this church or a church, because two chapters after chapter 23, which we read, Matthew tells us that churches, all churches, will be called to give an account at the great judgment of their compassion for the poor. How many American churches do you think will pass that test? Will in town pass that test? Who are the poor? Well, the poor are people that have no place. The material poor are deprived of a place within the bounty of the community. The lonely, the imprisoned, the emotionally poor do not have a place in a loving family. The politically poor do not have a place in the decision-making processes of their government. Refugees are literally displaced people without a part of earth to call their own. 
and the spiritually deprived do not know of their place in God's heart. Christian compassion, Christian mercy addresses all of these problems, not some of them. But what were the Pharisees and the spiritual leaders doing? They were busy counting their tithes on their garden plants. You give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin. You see, Leviticus and Deuteronomy called for agricultural tithes on corn and wine and oil. But these guys wanted to be really faithful, so they went above and beyond. These guys weren't content with the normal tithe. They tithed even off the stuff that they grew in their garden, mint, dill, and cumin, you see. Jesus was thrilled, right? Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. They're giving more than everyone else does, and he calls them hypocrites. People are dying, in other words, he says, and you're comparing how much you tithe off your stupid little garden plants. How do we respond to this as in town? Well, as we dream about the future, as we think about what could in town become, what sort of community could we become that could serve the needs of our city? One of our most recognizable features has got to be an intentional compassion for the lonely and the displaced and the emotional and the spiritual homeless. And notice, Jesus doesn't rail on them about the fact that they're tithing. He says, keep doing that. What you're doing is you're missing the point. You're majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. And so, what we should do is to carefully adjudicate between those things that seem important and those things that really are. And I can imagine Jesus saying to many churches, you sure look busy. There sure is a lot of motion. There's a lot of programs. But what about the poor? What about the underprivileged? What about systemic injustice in your neighborhood? What about the spiritually homeless? What about those people? And then finally and quickly, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, this has been a hard sermon because this is a lot of to-dos, right? He's laying it on pretty thick. Church, get busy. There's a lot to do. Quit scurrying around with unimportant things and help people. There's people dying outside our doors, and you're counting how much you tithe on your garden plants. I wrestled with this one a lot, faithfulness, and I read a lot of commentaries, not just the Internet. Because it's essentially saying, again, be faithful. (laughs) Do your job, right? As a Christian, do your job. Get busy. But is that what we need? Maybe it is. Maybe you do. Maybe I do. Maybe we all do. We need a third kick in the pants. But here's what we have to remember in closing, is that faithfulness is more than faithfulness to a job description. It's faithfulness to a person. It's faithfulness to God's plan for the world and God's plan for you. It's faithfulness to a person. You see, this person, before he asks you to be an agent of his grace, makes you a recipient 
of his grace. He goes to the cross for you and for me. And so, in the end, it's not pursue justice, love mercy, and be faithful so that I will be approving of you, so that I will love you. Instead, it's pursue justice, love mercy, be faithful, but as recipients of His irrepressible, uncontainable love for you, you are to reach out to others with that love. This person leaves our church, and He leaves you with an impossible commission, but with an invincible promise. Therefore, go. This is the conclusion. What in the world are we doing for heaven's sake? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. This person, Jesus, leaves his church with an impossible commission, but with an invincible promise, because he says, he brackets that commission with this, all authority on heaven in heaven and on earth, all authority has been given to me, that is Jesus, and surely in town I am with you to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, what a heavy sermon, and if we were to read even further into chapter 23, it would just bust us to pieces because there are so many things that, as I inspect my own life, that I'm not doing that I'm too busy scurrying around that I can't fulfill some of the most basic commands. Father, I pray that as a church, I pray that as a pastor, I pray that as individuals and families in this church that we would learn to adjudicate between what is essential and what is non-essential, what is important and less important, and that we wouldn't busy ourselves and scurry around doing things that only seem important while people are dying outside of these doors. Father, let us, yes, care for one another. Let us disciple one another. Let us encourage one another. All of those one another things, as someone comes into this church, let them feel revitalized and served and joined to a community of friendship. But Father, let us, let this be a breeding ground for mission. And we pray that we would never forget our sentness. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.